Welcome to EO Today. I'm Paul Peppis, Director of the Oregon Humanities Center. My guest today is Natalia Molina, Distinguished Professor of American Studies and Ethnicity at the University of Southern California. Professor Molina's research explores the intertwined histories of race, place, gender, culture, and citizenship. She's the author of three monographs, Fit to be Citizens, Public Health and Race in, in Los Angeles, 1879 to 1940, from, uh, from 2006, How Race is Made in America, Immigration, Citizenship, and the Historical Power of Racial Scripts, from 2014, and A Place at the Nayarit, How a Mexican Restaurant Nourished a Community, from 2022. Molina co-edited, along with Daniel Mart uh, Martinez-Hosang and Ramon Guterres, Relational Forms of Race, Theory, Method, and Practice in 2019. In addition to publishing widely in scholarly journals, Professor Molina has also written for the LA Times, Washington Post, San Diego Union Tribune, and many more. A 2020 MacArthur Fellow, Professor Molina has also served on the board of, the Calif of California Humanities, a nonprofit partner of the National Endowment for the Humanities, and she currently serves on several other boards, including the Board of Governors of the Huntington Library, Art Museum, and Botanical Gardens, and on the Scholars Council for the Library of Congress. On April 18th, 2023, Natalia Molina will give a talk, A Place in the Narrative, Telling Underdocumented Stories, as the Oregon Humanities Center's 2022-2023 Crestman Lecture and part of our Belonging series. Thanks, Natalia, so much for coming on the show. It's great to have you with us. I'm so happy to be here, Paul. Thanks for having me. So first, tell us a little bit about your background. As a scholar, as a... As a person, as a where, you were, where, you're, where you were born, where you're from, <laughs> okay. and, and also how you came to do what you do. Oh, great. So I'm a, I'm a rare find. I'm a third generation Angelino. In a city full of transplants, I'm a third generation Angelino. And yet I'm not always who people would picture as a third generation Angelino, as a Latina, um, as the granddaughter of a Mexican immigrant. I also grew up in a multi-ethnic, multi-racial area, Echo Park, which is you know um, a place that the Nayarit is also about. And that gave me a really different experience of growing up in a you know diverse neighborhood versus a ethnic barrio, you know, uh, with a monolithic background. And these were things I didn't realize were that unique until I got to college, uh, to UCLA. And that was my first experience in really understanding Latino history, Latino studies, gender studies, and seeing those things gave me like a language to talk about my experience, but my experience was also different from that. And so I was also really interested in how to use these tools I was gaining, but to tell a different story. And when I went on to the University of Michigan uh, for a PhD in history, that was a chance to say, oh, I want to tell the story of Los Angeles, of Latino in LA, from this different lens. And I'll talk about this a little bit in our in the talk that I give um, when I'm with you all. I mean, this stuff, you know, that we kind of take for granted now was so new when I was doing this. And it wasn't that long ago. But the LA Times even wrote an article on this. Um, you know, and and I didn't realize until I was putting the talk together, but it the title of the article was a new place in history. And of course, so much of my work is about placemaking, a place at the Nayari. 
So it's really been a journey to get to this place, but really questions I'd, I'd had with me all along um, and just kind of needed the, the tools to tell these stories. So let's talk a little bit about the trajectory of your career. Your first book, Fit to be Citizens, Public Health and Race in Los Angeles, 1879 to 1940. Can you give us a kind of quick overview of, of that project? Sure. So I'm a bad historian because I'm bad at telling things linearly. <laughs> so I'll say that, you know, for this new book, A Place at the Nayari, which is based on my grandmother's restaurant, people always say, what was it like to tell such a personal story? But to me, all my books have been very personal. So for me, the Fit to be Citizens book starts with a question I had wondered since I was a little girl, which was, why do I see representations of Los Angeles look this way? And yet it's not the Los Angeles that I know, um, to the point that like, I would watch I Love Lucy, which is how I learned how to speak English. Um, and there's this this one season, season four, I believe, when they come out to Los Angeles to Hollywood. And I was like, I want to go there. And not realizing I was here. It just felt so different. And then in my family, you know, it's a strong matriarchal family filled with these, you know, badass chingona, you know, we say chingona in Spanish, Latinas. And yeah, I would read the history books and it was often filled with men. And, you know, it makes sense. Uh, men were the dominant ones who migrated. The, you know, they fit the dominant demographic profile in the early 20th century. But I knew there were other stories to tell. So to me, Fit to be Citizens is trying to answer those two questions. I tried to tell it from the perspective of women healers, women um, community uh, healers like parteras, midwives, curanderas, you know, um, people that pe people that uh, the community members would go to for healing practices, but those records weren't really there. So then I tried to tell their story kind of from the top down, from the perspective of public health officials and doctors. And the questions were, how did they shape our ideas about race, about what it meant to be Latino, about where Latinos could live, work, go to school, play in Los Angeles in the 20th century. So it's a story of public health and race, but it's really trying to get at like, how did that shape uh, Latino world making in the first half of the 20th century? That's fascinating. So your second monograph, How Race is Made in America, Immigration, Citizenship, and the Historical Power of Racial Scripts, in that book, you examine Mexican immigration into the U.S. between 1924 and 1965. What's important about Mexican immigration in that period? This is another book that starts with a personal question. So I've talked about growing up in Echo Park and that it just felt very different than these other experiences. When I got to UCLA and you know, people would tell me, you know what it's like growing up with only Latinos, or you know what it's like coming from a barrio, or you know what, it, and I was like, I really don't. Um, I came from a working class area, but you know, my best friend was Mexican Irish. My other best friends were working class whites, um, you know, lots of Filipinos in our neighborhood, Vietnamese refugees. So it felt really different. And so what it meant to me to be Latino was very much shaped by what I was and wasn't, you know white or black or Asian or indigenous. And so for that book, I was really interested in what shaped these categories of Mexican. 
And I was interested in why do certain people get to assimilate into whiteness, like, you know, Irish or the Italians, um, when Mexicans, Latinos are le legally classified as white as well. And that moment that people talk about that assimilation process, that whiteness, because even for ethnic uh, European immigrants, there was this hierarchy of whiteness as people like Matt Jacobson um, and David Rodiger have talked about. And that moment where that starts to change is the 1924 Immigration Act. So I was interested in both how do immigration acts shape our ideas about race, like public health officials and scientific understandings of race shape our ideas about race, but then what do people do with those systems? How do they act within those systems? And then it, the game changes again all over with the 1965 Immigration Act. So the book really focuses on how we got to the 1924 Immigration Act, that alchemy of race making between 1924 and 1965, and then ends with all the questions that the 1965 Immigration Act that changes all the definitions of who can immigrate and who can't and why and why not um, with 1965 and contends with that moment. Uh, also an, another completely fascinating project. So let's talk now about the most recent book. Um, you never met your, your grandmother, uh, your namesake, Natalia Barraza, and she uh, came to the U.S. in uh, the 40s. Is that right? 1921. 1921. Right, right, right. Okay. So do you know why she came? No. One of the things I want to get into with the book, um, you know, since it's not my first rodeo or my first book, I know, <laughs> I know now that, you know, the point of writing books is also to be in conversation with people and for people to use those tools. So I really try to hit home this concept of the underdocumented those who aren't, whose lives aren't traced in the archives. But one of the things about being an immigrant and being the first is that you also don't have oral history there. You don't have witnesses for your life. So we don't have any witnesses of her life in that time period that told us, can tell us why she came. We know that, but you know, as a historian, I can give you context. We know that it's you know, on the heels of the Mexican revolution when you know, you know, hundreds of thousands of Mexicans are immigrating here. Uh, I know from the historical record that she'd been married before. Perhaps she came with a husband, perhaps she was leaving a husband. Um, and we know that she had worked in the army as a cook. She'd married someone in the army as well. And so she had skills, she had marketable skills. So either the, the push of a bad marriage or the pull of a good marriage plus marketable skills meant that she ended up um, settling in Los Angeles. And we know that Los Angeles was a logical point. By 1930, Los Angeles would have the highest population of Mexicans outside of Mexico City. So that, that makes perfect sense, but it doesn't necessarily make perfect sense that this divorcee from Mexico would come to the US and open a restaurant. So do we know what inspired her to do that? We know that, and so again, and this is also a book that re, uh, required, allowed, invited, forced me to tell this story in a way that I hadn't usually told, right? Uh, as historians were trained to tell what we know. Uh, 
and maybe some amount of, you know, the evidence doesn't say this, but this book has a lot of what we don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we know that women at this time usually worked for people. So they were seamstresses and nannies, housekeepers, waitresses, cooks. If they worked for themselves, laundresses, if they worked for themselves, they might own a boarding house. And at some point she must she must have realized, and I think it was with the help of becoming a mother, um, of adopting my mother and my uncle, that she said, wait a minute, <laughs> I could always work for people or I might start my own business. And you know, it was hard because the first restaurant that she opened was during the depression and it closed. And then she went to work in, agri- in an agricultural agricultural camp. We don't know why she left, but by then she had a witness, my mom, who remembers her saying, this is not a life for us. And if you read those agricultural reports, you know that um, there were little long hours, harsh conditions, few sanitary um, uh, uh, facilities in terms of bathrooms and sinks and showers and these kinds of things. And so she moved back. And we know from reading, Jewish history, that a lot of those immigrants, that was why they started their own businesses, because they just, and you know, Chinese history, that people just weren't giving people an opportunity, these immigrants an opportunity, and to do anything that would have amounted to something meant starting your own business, as hard as that was. So the full title of the book is A Place at the Nayarit, How a Mexican-American Restaurant Nourished a Community. That title evokes a concept that you mentioned already that's central to your argument, the concept of placemaking. So tell us how you understand that term and tell us how your grandmother and her restaurant did this uh, amazing work of placemaking. I think for people doing ethnic studies um, and especially geographers that they have been engaging in placemaking for a while now. Um, I think that, or what also happens is that people use that placemaking term in different ways. So placemaking sometimes is used like by developers and really top down. And, you know, we can think about institutions that we know definitely define our sense of place in a community, a university, a humanity center, a library, a school, right? And these are really important places. But within ethnic studies, there's been more of a push to say, what about the kind of places that people develop? So within African-American studies, a barbershop, a beauty salon, a juke joint, that kind of thing. Um, And also within African-American history, we have this concept of black capitalism, of people really creating things for the community. Um, For Latino studies that didn't quite exist in the same way, we also don't really talk about middle class um, and entrepreneurs. And so this was my effort to say, how is this working in the Latino community? And also an effort to also say, you know, we tend to think about as democratic space as public space, right? You know, public, the public good, the public square. And yet when you pair that with segregation laws, the two are pretty incompatible. (laughs) You think about, uh, parks, the way that they're segregated, beaches, even, you know, the water, you know, the, the rope going down the beach into the water, P- 
public pools. Um, at one of the book talks I gave, somebody gave the example of that their dad had grown up in Los Angeles in the 40s and 50s. And the public pool was segregated. They, they only let Mexicans go to the public pool the day before it was drained. And his dad worked at Simon's Brickyard. And so he, the story his family tells is how all the workers would cover themselves with uh, dust from the bricks and then jump in the water and turn the water brown and, and just kind of say, you want to call us dirty Mexicans? Well, how about this? <laughs> so this was also a book that was supposed to, that I really wanted to tell that story of, um, even though it's a semi-public space, a restaurant, you know, it's a business, it also afforded people a democratic space that was unavailable to them in a public space. So your your grandmother established the Nayarit in 1951 in Echo Park, where you were raised. And one of the many important contributions of the book is to give an account of Echo Park. And it's a very special and interesting part of LA. So tell us what Echo Park was like in 1951. Echo Park has always been a place that is filled with placemakers. And so it was it was established as a place where people on the margins lived. Um, artists and um, uh, screenwriters, um, LGBTQ communities, the Marachin Society established their first branch there. White ethnic immigrants uh, established businesses there. You know, Hungarian restaurants, Italian delis. In just every way, um, you saw that people that were on the margins settled there and therefore kind of found common cause with one another. I'm not saying it was some sort of racial utopia, but we tend to think about California and Los Angeles as this progressive place where segregation didn't happen like it did in the South, but it did happen in Los Angeles. Um, you know, W.E. Du Bois, when he comes to Los Angeles in 1911 says, I've never seen the color line as uh, pronounced as I have in Los Angeles, because people had internalized that color line. You know, we also had the Ku Klux Klan. And so Echo Park developed differently uh, than other parts of Los Angeles, in part because it didn't have any, um, any developed communities, any kind of you know, large scale development. So it wasn't written into the homeowner's deeds it wasn't written into the land developers deeds. Uh, real estate agents weren't told not to sell to communities of color. It also has a very hilly landscape. And so it, it's almost like people could kind of hide out in Echo Park in ways that they couldn't in other places. And it just allowed for this kind of what many people I interviewed and that uh, have been interviewed before for Echo Park talk about as this bohemian landscape. You've already mentioned in uh, uh, earlier in the interview that the the stories that you've been telling and the stories that you tell, especially in the newest book, are st underdocumented stories. So why is it important to document underdocumented stories? There are so many reasons, <laughs> and I'll keep talking about this uh, when I go visit uh, you. But I think 
you know, one of my basic reasons uh, for writing the book was I just didn't see these stories reflected in the literature to the point where even I hesitated to tell this story. Within Latino studies, we often talk about the immigration, immigrant generation in the early 20th century. The 60s is devoted to um, you know, civil rights movements, farm workers movements, organized movements, social movements, all very important, all of which I will continue to teach and I hope we all continue to learn. But it wasn't really a point of uh, a, a time when we talk about immigrant labor and undocumented labor, unless maybe we're talking about the Bracero program. And that just leaves out a whole swath of people, um, inc including many times women who aren't part of the Bracero program and weren't leaders in these movements, or at least the most recognized leaders. So one was to tell this story that said, what about, what? how does the story change if we include these people? And there's something very powerful, powerful about seeing immigrants as plates makers, as seeing immigrants as people who establish urban anchors. Uh, it's all well and good to talk about the immigrant work ethic. And you know, immigrants are people who come here to try to make a better life for their, you know, their children and they keep their heads down and they work hard. But there's also a way that if we only look at immigrants that way, they're so reduced to flattened type. It may be a positive stereotype, but it is still a flattened type. And we think the best for them is to, you know, there's a sense that the best they can ascribe to is to work hard and do well for the next generation, rather than thinking about what rights do they deserve. And there's a way in which if we can't imagine in that in the past, we can't imagine that in the future. And we might think of the pandemic and the role that essential workers played. Essential workers that while we, those of us that were fortunate to work from home, um, do classes online, do our meetings online, and we're not out putting, you know, working in the agricultural fields, delivering food, all these kinds of ways which immigrants put food on our table. And yet when it came time to do testing, give vaccines, do PPE loans, all those kinds of things that they were not uh, a benefit of or did not get to benefit from. So it's a way of kind of expanding how we look by including people in our stories and seeing them in their three-dimensional lives in the past, we're more likely to do that for them in the future. So th that's very compelling. It's just that they're underdocumented and You've already mentioned that, you know, I asked you about your grandmother and you said, well, I, I don't know. So you're a historian and, you know, your previous books, you've used more traditional methods of historical research. You, you described it as top down. But in this book, that's not what you do. So tell us, how do you do this work of recovering underdocumented stories? What's the research like? Great point. Absolutely. I thought I have this, you know, <laughs> I'm kind of known for, you know, my research. I can, I can find a needle in a haystack and um, contextualize it and really spin a story out of it. And this one was different. You know, the national, I, I went to the National Archives for my second book. The finding aid alone is 32 um, microfilm reels, just the finding aid. 
this one was different. Echo Park, because it was off the radar and allowed people to kind of live their lives as they pleased, meant that it was off the radar in the history books as well. It's not just Latino immigrants, it was Echo Park as well. And so, you know, I started with oral interviews. I started with those shards of information. But even for the interviews, you need to prepare for them. You need to know what questions to ask. You need to be able to also push back in terms of, you know, well, this was going on at the time. How do you respond to this? Um, or does that complicate the story? Does that even contradict the story? And then one day it hit me. I pictured my tia Chayo, my great aunt Chayo, sitting on her porch in Echo Park in her chair, which she did every afternoon. And she was, and I pictured her reading El Echo newspaper from the state of Nayarit. And that's when I thought, oh, there's this other historical record. And so it was an embracing of transnational methods um, of saying, wait a minute, you know, you can have an origin story or these sources can have a different origin story than the place where immigrants settle. And so, you know, um, with the help of my research assistant, Alina Mendez, who did the first, you know, run through that research, I was able to start asking different kinds of questions, tell the story of what LA looked like, what immigration looked like, not from, you know, people who planned the city, but from the immigrants themselves who used uh, the city, who became place neighbors, who established urban anchors. So one of the consequences of this other mode of research is that the, the book is not a typical academic history. It seems to me it's a book that could have a much broader audience appeal. It could speak to broader audiences. Was that an intention of yours when you were writing it? Absolutely. It was absolutely an intention. Well, <laughs> I lied. It was either no one was going to read the book, right? You know, because it, it just, it felt like, it, it felt so risky. You know, I knew it was an original story. I had taught ethnic studies, urban studies, and Latino studies for about 15 years by the, by the point in which I thought, I'm just not seeing this anywhere. I think it's interesting. I think it'll be interesting to others because of what it's doing. And since I train graduate students, I review manuscripts, all of that, I thought, like, from an objective standpoint, I think this makes a valuable contribution. But it did still feel different. Then as I wrote it, I really tried to write it as accessibly as possible to name every concept I was using and to explain how people could use that and then explain my methods because I want every community to talk about their placemakers and their urban anchors. I want people to use this in their classrooms. I really want teachers in K through 12 to use it because like in places like California for our California history curriculum, we still go to missions. Kids still make like models of missions. They don't see themselves reflected in that history. And, and I don't mean just because they're you know not part of the mission story. I mean that, you know, indigenous peoples and, you know, Mexicans are just barely part of that history. Immigrants are barely part of the California history curriculum. And in a place where you know you have a hundred nationalities re represented, 
it's hard to picture a textbook that's going to cover all these groups and cover them sufficiently and in any kind of depth. But if you give people the tools nowadays with digital humanities, you know, I, and I have a curriculum for this, people can then, you know, uh, go interview their the owners of their, their favorite urban anchor. It might be a cafe in my neighborhood that um, has a large Armenian population. It's my dry cleaner who, you know, we're always talking about the Armenian diaspora. Um, you know, it could, it could be Porto's bakery <laughs> uh, here in, in Los Angeles for, you know, Cubans. Just there's so many things that people can do and they could create a, a, a digital map they could create a Instagram post, they create a blog, we can link them together. Uh, if you're doing this in a classroom and all of a sudden you start to see a place like Los Angeles or Eugene differently. So it's clearly, it's full, it, like with a full heart, it is my intention for people to use this book to tell their own story. Well, Natalia, on that uh, inspiring note, I think we'll call it, we'll call it a day for now. Um, it's been wonderful speaking with you. We're really looking forward to seeing you on the Eugene campus next week. Can't wait. I've been speaking with Natalia Molina, Distinguished Professor of American Studies and Ethnicity at the University of Southern California. On April 18th, 2023, Professor Molina will give a talk, A Place in the Narrative, Telling Underdocumented Stories, as the Oregon Humanities Center's 2022-2023 Cressman Lecturer and part of our Belonging series. Thanks so much for watching.